Father, may we, your people, be steadfast in our love and our devotion to you and to your word. Father, will you build confidence in us? Give us greater faith in you. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us through your word that we will know you, that we will know ourselves and our need for you as our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Have you ever heard of a golden calf? Do you know what this is in reference to? It's referring to that incident that happened at the very beginning of the Exodus period when Moses was on the mountain with God and the people who found it much easier to worship an image that they could manipulate rather than the God who had saved them told Aaron to make for them a God to worship and he made the golden calf. What we have before us today is a story that is commonly called the woman caught in the act of adultery. You may have noticed that I deviated from the norm and I didn't have what I'm going to preach on read like we normally do. You may have also noticed in your Bible that this section is bracketed or highlighted or even set off to this side and not part of the main body. The reason for this is because there's controversy over it. Not controversy over the content found within it, and not even controversy over whether or not this was an actual factual incident that happened in the life of Jesus or not. As D.A. Carson says, there's little reason for doubting that this event that's described here happened. The controversy all surrounds the fact, and this is a fact, that without a doubt, this story and these verses are not part of the original text. In fact, literary scholars have shown that the language and word usage is completely foreign and unique to anything else that John wrote. And we have a lot that he wrote. This has led scholars to determine that not only is this not part of the original text, but John did not, in fact, even write it. We know that they are not part of the original text because even though they are found in some later Latin manuscripts, the earliest Greek manuscripts, many of them, we have many early Greek manuscripts, none of them contain this story. Add to that that there's no commentary on this story until the 11th century. The early church fathers never cite this text. Those fathers including Clement, Tortullian, Origen, Cyprian, and Cyril. And you may think that that's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. 
But just by citing the early church fathers, we can actually recompile the entire book of John without a single manuscript at all. They quoted scripture that much. They quoted all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8, except this story. Also, this story is found in some of those later Latin manuscripts in other places. Again, as D.A. Carson writes, although most of the manuscripts that include the story place it here in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, some place it instead after Luke 21, 38, a completely different author. And other places, other place it after John 7, 44, or John 7, 36, or even John 21, 25, If your saying is true, then, David, then why is this section of scripture still here? Why is it still here? Daniel Wallace, who has a PhD in theology and has taught Greek and New Testament at the graduate level since the 70s, has this answer. He says, yet remarkably, even though most translators would deny John 7:53 through 8:11 a place in the canon, Virtually every translation of the Bible has this text in its traditional location. There is, of course, a marginal note in modern translations that says something like, most ancient authorities lack these verses. But such a weak and ambiguous statement is generally ignored by the readers of Holy Scripture. It's ambiguous because many readers might assume that in spite of those ancient authorities that lack the passage, the translators felt that it must be authentic, and that's why it's here. So how, then, has this passage made it into modern translation? In a word, there has been a long-standing tradition of timidity among translators. In fact, one 20th century Bible relegated the passage to the footnotes, but when the sales, the sales were rather lack lackluster, that again found it in its traditional spot in the Gospel of John. And even the NET Bible, for which I am the senior New Testament editor, has put the text in its traditional place. But the NET Bible also has a lengthy footnote explaining the textual complication and doubts about its authenticity. And the font size is smaller than normal so that it will be harder to read from the pulpit. But we, nevertheless, made the same concession that other translators have about this text by leaving it in its place. But what's the big deal about all of this? The big deal... is that this isn't part of the original text. But you're sitting there saying, but isn't this allowing the Bible to be attacked by liberal academics? Isn't that what we're doing? Isn't this an attack on the inerrancy of the word of God? I mean, isn't this a great story with a great representation of the grace of God shown through the forgiveness of Jesus? Isn't this a great story of the hypocrisy of people toward others and how they have blind spots concerning their own sin? Doesn't the fact that for almost a thousand years, people, Christians, 
thought and believed that this was, in fact, part of the Bible. Doesn't that mean anything? So what if it really isn't scripture? It's kind of scripture. Some people think that it's scripture. And even if it's not, doesn't the fact that most scholars believe that something like this actually happened, doesn't that make any difference? Well, what if I were to walk up to this podium and read these verses and then preached on it? Verses 1 through 12 of the Gospel of Thomas. Or what if I came up here and read this chapter and then preached on it? 3 Nephi, in which we have an account of Jesus personally visiting the Nephites. You could be sitting there thinking that I'm making a straw man argument, that I'm taking this to the extreme. After all, the verses in John were thought to be actual scripture for a very long time. Part of the problem is found in the fact that allowing this to remain in our Bibles, to be held as scripture, has opened the doors for a very effective attack against the validity and authenticity of the Bible. In, 2004, in 2005, a man named Bart Ehrman wrote a blockbuster book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Can you guess which verses he used as his main argument that we can't trust the Bible? And can you guess what evidence that he used to show that this story should not be in Scripture? Yes, these verses, and he rightly cited the evidence proving that they're not original and should not be part of the Bible. And what he wrote in his blockbuster book sent shockwaves through the believing Christian world. The problem is, this book that we hold can for us be a golden calf. Wait a tick. You're treading on some pretty holy ground there, mister. What do you mean that the Bible can be a golden calf? This is the word of God. Yes, it is. And no, it's not. None of us here have an issue with there being things contained within this book that are not part of the original manuscripts. Things like maps, red letters, references, chapter numbers, verse numbers, and even headings. None of these things cause you to believe that this is not the word of God. Because you really should believe that it is. But this book can become an idol just as many as, as much as any other good thing that God has given us. Think about how the Pharisees and the religious leaders had taken the law of God and added to it for clarification to make it easier and how it and the temple had become an idol for them. The problem was that while they had the words of God, they had the law of God, and they even had the temple of God. They did not know the God of the law, the God of the word, or the God of the temple. And for this reason, those things became idols for them. They replaced God in their hearts and minds, and these things became the objects of worship. 
all in the name of God. The same thing has happened in many places with this book that we call the Bible. There are people who call themselves Christians, who claim to worship God alone, and who hold that if you do not read from, teach from, the King James Version, you are not orthodox. They hold up that translation to the place of God. It's not. It's just a translation of the Word of God. It's no more holy or special than any other book. The Roman Catholics do something similar. They take a loaf of bread and a, junk, a jug of juice out of a counter, and they place them in special containers. And then they say some magic words over them, and they transform those things into the actual body and blood of Christ. They call this transubstantiation, and it's just plain silly. But many evangelicals do the same sort of thing with the word of God. God has graciously given us his word in order that we can know him and have a relationship with him and understand what it is to be a son of his. And this is truly amazing. But what are we to think then if there have been things added to the word over the centuries that can be proven that weren't original? Doesn't that prove that, the, that God can't keep his word pure? That we can't trust that any of it is original? The grace of God indwelling mere mortals wrote his holy scripture, and that's amazing. But we should never place guardrails around God because when we do, we are in danger of creating an idol in our own hearts, in our own making. Because just as he could have prevented false teachers from entering the early church, and perverting his spoken word, he could have prevented any scribes or theologians from tampering with his word as well. And he chose not to. And he did that in order to strengthen his church, in order to build up our faith and to cause us to know, to really know to a greater degree the reality of his truth as truth. Just as the heresies of old and the current ones are purging and perfecting his church, so too the added verses are doing the same thing. Wait, what? Are you saying that we can know the word is true because we know that all of it is not true? Yes. In fact, the fact that we can prove that these verses are not original should cause you to have even more confidence in the authenticity of the word of God. He has preserved so many copies of his word, multiplied thousands more than any other work of antiquity, that we can know for certain what is in the Bible and what is not. And because of this, we should be so confident in the sovereignty of God to not hold to the traditions of men when it comes to the Lord or to his word. Because I guarantee you that if the Lord had determined to drop those ancient Greek manuscripts into the hands of the reformers, this controversy would never have begun. 
because there was a controversy over what was scripture in their day as well. The Roman Catholic Bible is different than the Christian Bible. I don't know if you knew that or not. They have a differing set of Ten Commandments in it. They have books in the Old Testament that the Reformers knew from historical manuscripts were not scripture. So the Reformers rejected them from the Christian Bible. They did the hard thing, the right thing, the obedient thing, and rejected those verses and books and took them out of the Bible. But these ancient Greek manuscripts have been given to us in our generation. The problem lies in the fact that we are no longer like the Reformers. We are no longer dogmatic in our devotion to God. We no longer study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not be ashamed. And so we have this controversy. We who hold to the same five solas as the reformers did. So what are we going to do with them? How are we going to act? And how should we deal with these verses? Should we ignore the facts as we know them and just continue on as we have? What difference does it make? It's not like we're going to be held accountable for what the truth we know and what we don't. Proverbs 24, verse 11 and 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the hearts perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And, while he not, and will he not repay man according to his work? Herein lies the rub. Sola Scriptura. But you may be thinking that Sola Scriptura is not found in the Bible. That it's nothing more than a man-made tradition. And you're right. Kinda. John MacArthur has said concerning Sola Scriptura, the Reformation principle of Sola Scriptura has to do with the sufficiency of Scripture as our supreme authority in all spiritual matters. Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. It only means that everything necessary, everything binding on our conscience, and everything God requires for us is given to us in Scripture. Furthermore, we are forbidden to add to or take away from Scripture. To add to it is to lay on people a burden that God himself does not intend for them to bear. Scripture is therefore the perfect and only standard of spiritual truth, revealing infallibly all that we must believe in order to be saved and all that we must do in order to glorify God. That, no more, no less, is what sola scriptura means. The difference between the text of Scripture and any other text written and recognized as authoritative by the church, the early church, such as the ecumenical creeds, is that Scripture was God-breathed, inspired for the purpose of being the unique vehicle by which God addresses his church with his own living voice. The issue that most evangelicals have over these verses is we have a fierce mindset that we should not, cannot tamper with the word of God. 
and we're right in that thinking. But we're wrong in clinging to the idol of this book and unwilling to yield to the sovereignty of God in giving us his preserved word. His word is unique. It's authoritative. It's all that we need in life to know how we should act and even how we should deal with this story. But you may be thinking, though, it sure would be a lot easier if, if Jesus was just standing here in our midst, telling us what to do, telling us whether or not these were, in fact, his original words that he wanted written. But listen to one, to a man who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on that holy mountain. This man, Peter, knew Jesus walked with him, was taught by him, watched him live and do the impossible. And he had this to say about Scripture. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, 17 through 21. And what does this more sure word, this prophetic word more fully confirmed have to say concerning his word? How does he say that we are to act? and treat his word. Deuteronomy 4.2 And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land Yahweh, the God of your father, is giving you. And you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I commanded you. Yeah, but that's the Old Testament God. When he was still mean and stodgy before he was starting to deal with us his church his favorites okay well let's look at something from the second half of the covenant given to us by god revelation 22 18 and 19 i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The word, the more sure word, the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, was of such importance to God that he gave it to John the Revelator, who begins that book, the one that ends with this warning about adding to his book with this, Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those that hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. 
John then tells us what it was. Um, tells us that it was because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Again, because of the word of God, he was exiled. Verse 9. It was then that he tells us why he wrote this book. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And everything, every one of those letters that he writes to those seven churches all begin with something like this, the words of. And then it gives a descriptor of Jesus such as he who holds the seven lampstands, or he who has a sharp two-edged sword, or the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. And as many of you know, there are warnings in five of those seven letters. Because of error within those churches, and each one of them, there's a single common denominator. They did not hold to the word of God alone. Listen to the church at Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you have, you have hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Anubis, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what was this doctrine of Balaam that he's talking about? And what about that teaching of the Nicolaitans? Well, the doctrine of Balaam is a reference to the man that's named in Numbers 25, 1 through 3. Balaam was paid by Balak, the king of Aram, to curse the people of God. But on three separate occasions, the Lord would not allow him to do that, and blessings flowed from his mouth instead of curses. And Balak was none too pleased with Balaam. Balaam's response was that he could only prophesy as the Lord allowed. But the thing that he followed up with was to tell Balak that if he was to send some of his cult prostitutes over to the nation Israel, that they would surely follow those women and they would curse themselves. And it worked. And the teaching of the Nicolaitans tied directly in with the doctrines of Balaam. It taught that it was okay to participate in pagan religious ceremonies, to deviate from the word of God. And both of these things have the same theme in common, lack of commitment to the word of the Lord, that they, and that they both equate idolatry with sexual immorality or adultery. But what has this got to do with those verses that I'm not covering? 
One of the things that we love about that story is that Christ does not condemn that woman for adultery. We think that it's kind. We think that that's really showing love. And that's really how Jesus is. But the how does that stack up to the Jesus that we know wrote scripture, that is the author of true scripture? What does Jesus say about adultery? That Jesus is not so forgiving of adultery as the one found in the passage that I'm not covering. In that passage, we're told that he stoops down and begins writing something on the ground. We're not told what he's writing, but the accusers slowly walk away, beginning with the oldest first, until the woman is left alone with Jesus. And then he looks up and asks her, does no one accuse you? And then he tells her that he doesn't either. Go and sin no more. So how does that stack up alongside of verses that are actually found in Scripture? Well, let's begin by looking at the law that Jesus gave the nation Israel. Deuteronomy 22:22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. The first thing we notice is that the man and the woman should have been punished. They both should have been brought before Jesus. A point of contention that is bantered around as a reason to slant public opinion towards that woman of the non-scriptural story. But be that as it may, God did not give any exclusions as to the penalty of adultery in his law. In fact, adultery found its way into the Big Ten. The ones that make it to the plaques in our house, it's number seven in that list. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And later in the book of Jeremiah, we see a charge being brought against the nation Israel, a charge being laid down by God. Jeremiah 29, 23. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. Did you notice how sexual adultery has now become equated with adultery of the word of God? This ties in with what the charge is being made against the church in Pergamum, where they were perverting the clear word of God so they could participate in things that are outside of his clear word. But what does all this talk of adultery have to do with us? None of us here are doing that. I pray. One more verse, and I'll get to the point. In a teaching session on the Mount of Olives, Jesus was magnifying the terrible truths of man's sins, the extent of our depravity, and there he once again brought up that seventh commandment. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.28 and with that one statement, he has shown us all the reality of who we are. He knew that none of us could claim innocence, since this is the meaning of the seventh commandment. 
We are all guilty as charged. And here, in this not real story, we are told that Jesus does not condemn the woman for adultery, and we feel good about it because of it. We feel good because we think that we now have an escape clause, a way out. There's a loophole, an exclusion clause, a chink in the righteousness of God. He really would not condemn a person to eternal hell because of something silly like sin. He just makes that person feel a little bit uncomfortable. He'll let them off with a warning. But hear the reality of God, of our inheritance through and in him. The importance that he has placed on his word. The importance of it in our lives. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 22. Last book of the Bible. It begins with a stunning description of our eternal home, a place that we can't fathom as being real, as being life, but we are told that it is reality, and we're given things in this realm to give us confidence that just because we can't see it, that we can't feel it, that we can and should believe that it is real. Things like air. Do you see air? Can you feel air? We feel it when the wind blows, but even then we call it breeze. We don't call that air. But we know that there's air. We advance in technology to the demonstrate the amazing complexity and the sheer magnitude of the mind of God in just creating air. Things like gravity. Can you see gravity? Most of the time, we don't even feel gravity, but without it, we can't survive. And things like electricity. Long before Edison created the light bulb, there was electricity. Man didn't create electricity. God did. Man has simply become aware of it and has harnessed it to some degree to make our lives easier. But here is how our home is described for us in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, for they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and he will reign forever and ever. Again, we can't really fathom this, but it doesn't make it untrue. It just shows us how far we are from what we will be. And then verse 6, we have this. These words are trustworthy and true. Again, the emphasis on words. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. 
right after giving us the encouragement of the reality of our eternal home, the angel then highlights the importance of what he has said. These words, what he has just said, are trustworthy and true. What words is he talking about? The ones he didn't speak or the ones he has spoken? And to further illuminate the supreme separation from the inspired word of God and all other writings, he then clarifies which words are trustworthy and true. The ones that God of the spirits of the prophets, the men that he used to pen his words. It was that God of that spirit who used these men to pen these things that must take place. Not another person, not a different spirit. And no matter how good the intentions may have been, nothing is the same as that spirit or those words. And then the word, the incarnate Son of God speaks. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is, one, is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 7 is startling in its revelation and promise. And it's also a reiteration of verse 1 of the chapter 1 of this book as well. Giving the word of God supremacy in the life of the church, in the life of the Christian. We, the readers, are meant to be brought up short by this verse. Behold! Pay attention. Look forward to this. Expect this. Let this reality be your hope. I am coming soon. Who's coming soon? I am. It's the word who was giving John a personal sneak peek into our home. The one that is telling John and us that his words are trustworthy and true. And it's he who here tells us once again that if we keep his word, that we will be blessed. Through the entire Bible, the word of God, the supremacy of the word of God, the radical exclusivity of the word of God is shown to us. How did God create the heavens and the earth? The spoken word. What is Jesus called in John 1.1? The Word. This is why the Reformers held the Word of God to such importance, to the exclusion of everything else, no matter how good or helpful they were. This is why, no matter how long the Apocrypha was in the Roman Catholic Bible, no matter how helpful it could be, no matter if Jude quoted it or not, it was not part of the unique, God-breathed, God-inspired word. And for this reason, it had to be jettisoned. These are not the same plane as the word of God. And these men didn't hold up any of the catechisms or statements of faith as equal to the word of God. For the reformers, it was the word of God that gave all of this any validity. And then verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2 are a commentary given to us by John. This is the usual thing for John to do. 
Here he adds a commentary concerning the angel that had shown him that river of life. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down at the, uh, to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. But once again, God places the importance on where he desires it. Not on the angel, not on the apostle, but on the word of God. Who does the angel say that he's a fellow servant alongside of? Those that keep the word of this book, the word of God. And he tells up John not, or he tells John not to seal up this book. Should make your mind go back to another time. Because there was another man that an angel from the Lord was sent to. The prophet Daniel. We are told that during his time, there was an angel that also came to him to tell him of the things that must take place, much like what has happened with John. Daniel 12, 1 through 4. At that time um, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like a star forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Did you notice the similarities between what was told to these men? In both instances, there was a separation within humanity. In John's revelation, we're told to let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy to be filthy, and the righteous to be right, and the holy to be holy. In Daniel's revelation, we're told of the same groups, in the future tense, and then in reverse order. The righteous to everlasting life, and the evil to everlasting contempt. And what was it that Daniel was told that contained the names of those that would be delivered? The same thing he was told to shut up. The book. Here, in this section of scripture, we see the importance of the word of God compared to any other man-made import. Can you see how important the word of God is? Even here, in Daniel, the exclusivity, the supremacy, the ascendancy of the word is highlighted. And in the book of Revelation, the angel came to John and told him to worship God alone. Then he tells him not to seal up the words of this book, that it may be read. And then we're given this second to the last statement made by Jesus, verses 12 through 17. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves to practice falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. In these verses, Jesus desires to give comfort to his people. The people whose names are written in his book of life. The very people that he has been, been putting through tribulation in order that he would receive glory. And that they, through their testimony, would be validated. And again, we are told of the eternal separation within humanity. This should be critical of critical importance to us because there is a separation between us. There are those that are blessed, that have washed their robes, and for this reason have the right to the tree of life, and who can enter a blessed hope. And then there's the other group those that are called dogs, sexually immoral, murderers, and those that love lies. Did you notice that there's no distinction within that second group? They're all lumped in with each other. The murderer is not separated from the liar. The sexually immoral is not cast into hell, while those that practice sorcery are given a pass. They are all standing outside of the gate. They are all like the people in the flood. All are outside of the ark, banging on the door. But to those who have washed their robes, washed them in the blood of the Lamb, they are given this assurance that this angel was sent by God to John for them, for the church, not the world, the church. And to the church, the Christ, the bright morning star, the root and descendant of David says, come, come and drink freely of me. All that have been given the heart desire me. Come and drink the water of life without price. And then finally, we come to the last two verses given John given by the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. Who did I say that this book was written to and for? The church, not the world. And to the church, this same Christ who just offered himself the water of life freely to, 
the same bright morning star ends this book by placing emphasis once again on sola scriptura. Not one of us sitting here has an issue with these two verses from Revelation being applied to the Mormons or to the JWs or to any other group that twists scripture. But do we, especially us who hold to sola scriptura, do we commit immorality ourselves by not holding the word of God as sacred, set apart, immutable, and the only inspired word? This is why that story that has been added to the Bible is so damning. Yes, it was believed to be original, authentic for many years. But even then, there were godly men who, right who rightly understood the meaning of that, and they were appalled at the thought that it could be true. But more importantly, we are held to the standard of what we know as true. There's this little vignette in the Gospel of Luke when Peter, after hearing Jesus tell the crowd that they must be ready for his coming, asks this, in Luke 12, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? Whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over him all his, over him, all, over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. This is the important part. But the one who did not know and did what was deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom th they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. Saints, allow the word of God to challenge us even challenge the conventional thinking of those within Christendom. We will be held responsible for what we know. We can't give excuses for being idolatrous with the word of God. We will not get a pass from the one who is our master, from the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. We have been given the sure word of God. And just because it feels good, or just because everyone else is doing it, or just because we don't want to be seen as radical, we can't just go along. We will be held accountable for what we know. And don't think it's strange that God would allow a scribe to insert a story that seems plausible into his word. He's the same God 
who allowed false teachers to come into his body from almost the very beginning. He does this to strengthen his church, to prune his church, to reveal his church. And he is glorified when his saints, like Martin Luther, are willing to stand for his word. Saints, let us somberly reflect on our lives. If we have been caught in the very act of adultery concerning the word of God, by giving what we know, what has been proven to not be scripture, a pass, then let us repent of this grievous sin and let us worship the God of the Bible and not this Bible. May we stand against those that would desire to add to the word or detract from it. Let us be steadfast in our loyalty to the God that offers us the living water in himself, being confident that what we know to be the word of God is what we will be held responsible for. And let us not quote what is not scripture as scripture. Let us not allow our minds to place those stories alongside the clear word of God. And certainly, let us never teach those things as scripture. We have been given access to the tree of life, the river of life, the holy city, those things which have been given to us in this book by the author of this book. May we, like the reformers, be steadfast in our devotion to that author and to that sure word. Let's pray.